We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Six o'clock, roughly, a little after that. Six o'clock on Sunday will be kickoff for the Grey Cup, Toronto Argonauts versus Winnipeg Blue Bombers in... Regina, Saskatchewan, which uh, somehow seems appropriate. Not that we didn't love having it here. We absolutely did. We will next year again. But it seems like if you can put three years in a row in Hamilton, Regina, and Hamilton, you're doing pretty well as far as finding the folks who really care about this league. Uh, Rod Peterson is host of the Rod Peterson Show. He is former play-by-play voice of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. There's nobody who knows as much about that city and its football and its team as he does. Rod, how are you today? It's a nice build-up. Thank you, Scott. Nice to hear from you, my friend. I, as I was just saying, I think that if you were the CFL and you could find three straight years of places to put the Grey Cup, some combination of Hamilton and Regina seems about perfect. Well, they got that right. They, they get this one right, for sure. They're, they're fumbling around on a few other things. Winnipeg would be in there as a third right now, obviously, as they go for their third championship. And for the first time ever, Scott, I'm sure you're aware, the Blue Bombers led the CFL in attendance this season. First time ever. Which so, is uh, kudos to them. Which is, I mean, stunning that it's the first time ever, especially since how, how long has that new stadium, well, new, it's been open 2013. for... A, yeah, I mean, it's been open long enough that you would have thought somewhere along the way they would have led the league. Because it's a beautiful yeah. place. Yeah, it is awesome. Yeah, that's the one thing. The CFL, if you want to look at the good, they get a lot of good things going. If you want to look at the bad, they get a lot of bad things. Well, let me <laughs> ask just, you this. Let me ask you this, Rod. I don't think there's too many people in Regina who um, hold a great deal of love for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. So will the Toronto Argonauts be the favorite in the stadium to, on Sunday, or will the Winnipeg oh. folks travel well enough that they'll be overwhelming the place? Look, Scott, things go in cycles. And I've been sitting here counseling Ryder fans, which was my job for 20 years. Uh, I'm like, listen, times have changed. You are not, it's going to be blue in your stadium on Sunday. And not just our fans. <laughs> I'm talking Winnipeg Blue Bomber fans. They've taken over your stadium. But in 2007, Audrey Center, Toronto, it was 80% green, if not more, when the Riders beat Winnipeg that day. Times have changed. Winnipeg is the flagship franchise of the Canadian Football League. I'm sorry. It is what it is. And you ask, but it's not going to be full of Ryder fans. <laughs> They're all selling their tickets. The weather is going to be terrible. So it's a lot of Winnipeg fans that have come out and, and a good number of Argos fans because I chatted with a lot of them today. The Grey Cup revelry is there, but Ryder fans have largely turned their back on this game and their tickets because their team's not in it. They can't stand the thought of their number one rival winning in their stadium. It is, uh, it, you know, it, we've thought of that already for next year about how important it's going to be for the Ticats to figure things out and not allow the Argos to be playing for a great cup at Tim Hortons Field. It, it makes sense. You don't want, I mean, it's bad enough if your rival makes it to the game, let alone doing it in your backyard. I'll, que- I'll question, though. So who is the, leaving aside the the team hatred or whatever else, who is the sentimental, sympathetic story right now? Is it Brandon Banks trying to finally win a Grey Cup in his fifth try? Is it... Where's the the storyline going for who is the sentimental favorite here? I haven't even... That's the first I've heard his name all week. Really? Okay. So, it's not Speedy B. Although I get it, and what a heck of a story that will be. The question is this. It's twofold. One, if Winnipeg Blue Bombers win their third consecutive... Grey Cup, which they're favored to do, 5.5 point favorites that our betting partner, Bet Regal, 
Are we tired of them? You know, are they becoming the Patriots? Is this does this qualify as a dynasty, which obviously it does. Nobody's won three in a row since the early 80s. That's That's number one. And number two, you know, do we get tired of it? Because Bomber fans, I don't know how much you follow on the CFL on social media, Scott, but when they won the West Final last week, they were really rubbing it in the faces of fans across the league. And it's kind of getting tiring. It's like, we loved you for 30 years. Well, now you're getting annoying. All right. So we all... We all think Winnipeg's going to win. It's how much is too much. Is that fair? No, uh, that's absolutely fair. So let me. You mentioned dynasty. You're a bureau football. You're a CFL historian. What is more impressive? The Edmonton Eskimos dynasty of the 70s into the 80s, into the 80s, where they had five in a row. Amazing. No one's done that. Or potentially three in a row, but done in a salary cap era. It's the salary cap thing because I know Hugh Campbell personally, and I love him. He's an icon. But he was doing shady business deals back then. It was, it was a different CFL back then. And, and, and the Bombers deserve credit, just like Tom Brady and Bill Belichick deserve credit for winning six Super Bowls. The Winnipeg and Bombers deserve credit because they've done it right. And I've seen that organization from the inside. Mike O'Shea, who doesn't need any introduction to your listeners, the head coach, winning coach of the year again last night. Kyle Walters, the general manager, who I believe is a great boy, and the president, Wade Miller, CFL alum, and Zach Camaros, the greatest, the greatest comeback story in the history of the CFL. Yeah, you don't um, need to remind right. Hamilton people about that. Well, <laughs> and Ryder fans, too. I mean, you know, I love Zach. Anybody who knows Zach, I think, loves him. I mean, I certainly do. But when the Riders needed him, and for that, well, when the Riders needed him, he wasn't available. Because of concussion issues. He played enough for you guys. Got you to do a great job and should have probably won it in 2014. We all know that story. So Zach is another sentimental favorite. He never gravitated to Zach in Saskatchewan, so he's not getting any plaudits or kudos from Ryder fans. But I think from football fans, I wrote off his career. The Bombers have actually rubbed my comments in my face, which I don't care what anybody thinks. It's a hell of a story. Zach outside of Saskatchewan, and I'm I'm happy for him. But I, to be honest, I'll be cheering for Toronto on Sunday just because of pinball. He came in and did my show on I guess it was Thursday here of Great Cup Week, and just charming. How can you not cheer for pinball? So, well, yeah, here in Hamilton, I'll tell you that with the Great Cup, there's some. It's a difficult spot for for Hamilton fans who are watching, and they will watch to decide who they're going to cheer for because. You know, on the one hand, you can't possibly cheer for the Argos. There's just, there's DNA issues that your DNA would not allow you to. Your family would kick you out of the home for a lot of places if you cheered for the Argos. But then you've got, as I say, Brandon Banks, Speedy B, who was a longtime Thai cat who people w- would have a soft spot for. On the other hand, how in the world do you cheer for Mike O'Shea, again, who is one of, if not the most hated of all time, former Thai cat times two guys, I, like you're stuck here. You are stuck if you're a Hamilton fan about who you vote for in this game. But you gotta watch, and you will watch, uh, right? Did you hear what came out of the news conference this morning with the commissioner of the CFL? I I, I did not. Okay, because it's um, it's done haphazardly, and I almost wonder what was if there was any thought behind this. And if it's, I wasn't there, by the way, I was on the air. But apparently, Randy Ambrosi announced in his state of the league address with fans that they are going to move the playoff games from Sunday to Saturday starting next year. Brilliant. 
I like that. Much better. Much better. Can you say that because we put that to the poll immediately. We did a poll on it. 82% agree with you that yes. And I just, again, I'm, I need to be sold either way. Because we tried it one year in 2008 and it was a massive swamp. Nobody wants. I, the only reason I say that, and maybe it's a timing thing, we got to run here, but uh, around here, especially with the Buffalo Bills, huge quotient of Bills fans, you play the playoff game against the Bills, even though last weekend was a disaster for Buffalo. I got to believe there's a lot of people, if Hamilton is not in the game, uh, who are saying, yeah, I'll, I'll go watch the Bills. I, I think getting it away from the NFL is really smart. I know we're out of time, but it's a fun debate for sure. There's what you learned today, Scott. There we go. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. I did not hear that. Uh, Rod Peterson, you can catch him. Find the Rod Peterson Show. Rod, tell us where people can find the Rod Peterson Show, please. Game Plus TV, available all across Ontario on Rogers Cable, Cogito Cable, Game Plus Television. We air daily noon to 2 Eastern. Always appreciate you coming on here, Rod. Thanks for doing this, and enjoy the weekend. Thanks for the call. Have a great weekend. That is Rod Peterson. He, uh, he knows his football. He knows his Regina. The two of them collide this weekend. And there's no Hamilton Ticats in it, so you can cheer without stress. You can watch and not be stressed out. I mean, we'd be better if they were there, of course. But someone said to me the other day, I don't have to be stressed out when I watch. There's kind of something kind of nice about that. Boy, a lot of people are talking about the end being nigh. That Twitter is teetering on the brink of disaster. I, I, I'm not sure I... I mean, I understand the scenario. I understand that a lot of people have left, and I understand that there's they're shut down for this Friday afternoon, apparently, because they've had so many resignations and on and on. It's, uh, it's a fascinating situation, though. It, could Twitter really die? Could Twitter really just cease to exist and go away? Seems... Almost unbelievable to consider it. Uh, Blaine Haggard is an associate professor of political science at Brock University. Joins us now. Uh, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Let me ask that question before we get into all the other things that I want to talk to you about. Is it a is it a feasible, realistic possibility that Twitter could cease to exist? Oh, sure, absolutely. I mean, it could it could, uh, it, and maybe not cease to exist as in there's no Twitter.com anymore. But it ceased to exist as kind of a um, as kind of an important uh, website. Definitely, um, Elon Musk is leveraged to the hilt. I, I'm, you know, looking at the numbers. I don't see how he can actually um, make Twitter profitable, and it's a private company, so it has to be profitable. And also, if people decide that they're not going to use it anymore, or if enough people leave, then it could uh, then it would just not it would just stop mattering. And then of course, if he doesn't have enough people to run the site, then it's going to become unusable anyway. See, this is the question that I had from the very first moment that he announced that he was thinking about buying this, and that is, if I am the people who run Twitter, why do I not just sell this to him and create another site that everybody will move to because no one's forcing you to stay on Twitter? I've never understood the, it has to be Twitter or nothing thought. Um, it's, it's a couple of things, I think. I mean, I've seen some people actually, you know, kind of whimsically suggest that as well. Um, and, you know, just for it would certainly add to all the comedy that we've had over the past uh, week or so with what with uh, this debacle. Um, there's, there's a few things, though. Uh, the first one is that there are, you, you know, what we call network effects is that, you know, the reason that uh, a company like or, or a site like Twitter 
or, or Facebook or Instagram or, or, or what have you is seen as valuable and why people go to it is because there are people there. So if people are there, then they're going to kind of going to continue to go there. So, for instance, um, Politico ran an article the other day saying that, you know, that even with all this trouble, you know, journalists and politicians in the United States are going to find it very hard to quit Twitter because that's where kind of everything happens. Um, the other thing, though, too, is that uh, these things are complicated. The, you know, when we think about, uh, you know, the romantic image of tech as being, you know, we'll just start a website in our garage and scale it up and that will be that. That's one thing. But these things are, are as, as Elon Musk is finding out, are incredibly complicated, not just technically, um, but they're also expensive. And it also takes a lot of kind of, you know, good managerial sense. Um, and, uh, you, you know, and, and people skills um, and knowledge about how people work and how people think um, to, to make something like this work. You've written a piece uh, that's online, Musk's Ascendancy Reveals Our Vulnerability to Fickle U.S. Platforms. It's a really interesting thought about the idea of so much of our communication that we do with each other is held in systems and on platforms that we literally have no control over, that they could theoretically disappear tomorrow, and then what? And, And that's really the big question, and then what? Yeah, I mean, and it's and it's bigger than just like say say Twitter, and it's not even just disappearing, but they could also change the rules about what happens tomorrow. Um, and you know, right now in, in Ottawa, they're debating a uh, Bill C eleven about uh, trying to bring um, these platforms underneath Canadian uh, cultural policy. And you know, one the interesting thing there for me, at least, is that it this whole debate has revealed how many people depend on these these companies for their livelihood for for selling things, for communicating, for creating their networks and so on and so forth. And so it's not just a matter of these companies, you know, that they might just disappear. I mean, Twitter is an extreme of what's going on right now is an extreme example, but it's also that they could also capriciously decide to change how people communicate on, on, uh, on the, on the platform. What's, what uh, content gets up, uh, gets promoted, what content gets downvoted. Um, so, that leaves everybody who uses these platforms very, very vulnerable to um, to whatever these companies decide to do. And yet the and you're absolutely right. And the flip side of that, though, is Bill C-11. One of the things that it talks about is what should be promoted. So people, I don't mm-hmm. think, want to have private sector companies having that power. But I don't think they want governments to have that power either. So how do you find the, the balance between those two things so it's not all one side or all the other? It, it is a tough question, um, and and but you know at the end of the day somebody is going to be making these decisions, and so which, this is one of the reasons why in my own thinking about these things I don't focus so much on you know how free or how you know how not free or how good or how bad these rules are um, because you know again they can change all the time. For me, it's about accountability. Is like what you know we have to live under these rules. Do we have and you know people being people. Um, there will be their mistakes will be made and stupid decisions will happen and so we take that as a given but how easy is it for us to kind of influence how these decisions are made so so that they at least kind of reflect you know kind of a general uh view of what people who are affected by these things what they actually want so and there are a few things that are uh you know there are a few ways of dealing with this um one that's being that a lot of people are looking at is that well what we could you know stay in the private sector and just go to uh, different services like Mastodon is one that's being put out. And, you know, without getting too much into it, it's being a very kind of a decentralized view where it's a lot of different kind of mini Twitters that are capable of talking to each other 
um, to some degree. Um, but even more interesting for me is something that's been proposed by a couple of communication scholars, uh, Fenwick McKelvey at Concordia and Robert Gell at York, suggesting that maybe uh, a, 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 a arm's length agency like, say, the CBC could get involved in running one of these platforms. So because with social media and with, with regular media, you've got a similar issue. You don't want the government doing, you know, basically saying what gets, you know, what people should read and shouldn't read. But you also need, you know, the CBC is kind of the recognition that there is a value in a public broadcaster that isn't kind of beholden to um, advertising to uh, mm. decide what to promote. And so you could have something like the CBC involved in setting up the social media site. Blaine Haggart from Brock University. I uh, very much appreciate your time today on this. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Well, this isn't particularly good news. I got to warn you up front, insolvencies in this country, that includes bankruptcies and other proposals to renegotiate financial terms, people who are in really desperate financial straits, uh, they are up 22.5% this year at this time over last year. It is, uh, it's a sign of surely a whole lot of things. But none of them really good by the sounds of it. Uh, Rabina Ahmed Hawk is a personal finance journalist. She joins us now. Thank you for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This is uh, we're heading into Christmas. We're supposed to be all upbeat and excited, and everyone's supposed to be feeling this is this is not really all that exciting or happy or good news. This sounds pretty darn gloomy. Yeah, and this is just one of many surveys that is uh, highlighting the economic and financial situation Canadians find themselves in. And even those of us who've been able to keep our job and maybe feel like, okay, we've got some money for a rainy day, we're in good, we're in a good financial situation, we can manage even if, you know, uh, the economy goes sideways, there's still that threat of losing your job. Uh, There is a RBC report out a couple of weeks ago that said they expect the unemployment rate to go from that, that record low of in June of 4.9% to uh, 7%. So more Canadians out of work, uh, many of them who might have seen their jobs stop and start during the pandemic, who went into savings in order to survive. So it is really making for uh, a really uh, fiscally responsible uh, holiday. I don't want to say it's gloomy because I think a lot of us are just excited to get together and be with our sure. family in a safe way. Uh, but I, you know, even myself, I'm finding that I'm I'm not making my list as long as I have in the past, and definitely cutting back on how much I spend on each person. For, for sure, fiscally gloomier, we'll say not not just gloomy. But you 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 touch on something there, and I wonder if this is it. That during the pandemic, there were still people working, most of them. Uh, but is it that people had to take take on more debt or dip into their savings so much? Is that where we are right now? And then now that we're out of this, people are realizing the damage they've done financially to themselves in some cases? There was, you know, two different groups of people that were existing during the pandemic. And this is true for anywhere around the world where there was a group of people who were able to keep their jobs, work from home, didn't see any stoppage in their in, in their salary. And then they were able to save uh, billions of dollars collectively. Canadians were able to save during the pandemic because there was no travel. There's no eating out. There's no extracurricular activities for the kids. There's not much to spend on when you're just at home all the time. Then there's the other side of it. And these are those individuals who worked in industries 
companies like travel and, travel and tourism, the restaurant sector, um, any any retail job, any any job where you have to deal with the public, deal with customers on a day-to-day basis because they were shut down. And unfortunately, that's also the group that comes into the lower income. So many people who work in retail and hospitality are on the lower income scale. And so they lost their jobs. They were relying on emergency benefits, which got them through, but it wasn't enough. I mean, everyone said, you know, $2,000 a month is not enough to live on for most of us, especially if you live in an expensive place like Hamilton, where rent is higher than the national average and, uh, you know, gas is higher no matter where you live in Canada. Um, You go out to eat, that's more expensive. You go out and get groceries, that's more expensive. And so that those individuals are now facing, as it is in every economic slowdown, every recession, those are the ones who are most vulnerable right now to to what's happening in the economy because they may see job losses again because when when there's a recession, people don't spend as don't tend to spend on extras. So restaurants suffer and uh, entertainment uh, industry suffers, and anyone who works in that will most likely uh, suffer as well. And uh, those individuals who, who are able to save, they're hanging on to their money because they're worried about what's to come. So even if they had a big renovation project planned or maybe upgrade that car or do something else with that extra cash or go out traveling, they're not doing it because they're worried about what 2023 is going to bring. Rubina, let me ask you the question that is impossible to answer. So I grant you before I even ask you, you can't answer (laughs) this question and we only don't have a minute here. So that's the other problem. But how do you solve this? Because the government, if they decide we're going to get involved and give out billions more dollars to help these people, we end up boosting inflation again, which we're trying desperately to bring down. If you don't do this, then people are in all kinds of trouble. What's the solution? So the the solution definitely isn't pumping more money into the economy. The solution is, I mean, for an individual, it's about getting back to basics. It's about learning again how to save like mom and dad, how to cut back where you can, how to not spend when you don't have a list or a budget in mind. And that's really important going into the holidays because we tend to spend more over the next six weeks than we do at any other time of year. So really keeping that top of mind. There's a generation of people right now who have never seen rising interest rates and they've never uh, seen, you know, the, the, the mark it's the way that they are. They haven't seen investments go down. Everything's always just been positive. And so for them, it's going to be, uh, you know, really going back to basics, that sage advice you get from your parents about spend less than you make, save where you can and put that money in that rainy day fund um, and don't go into more debt. That is the number one thing you can do for yourself right now. See, you just proved that I sincerely underestimated you. You did have an answer and you did it in a minute. All the things I said you weren't going to be able to do, you just did and made it very clear. <laughs> you would think I'd been doing this job for you know, a couple of months. That or something. was outstanding. That was that's a perfect answer, <laughs> and that's outstanding. Uh, that's Rabina Ahmed Dahak. Uh, she's a personal finance journalist. Great job. Really appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thank you for this. Thank you for having me. Have me on in time. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News. Today's talk nine hundred CHML. We are not quite forty-eight hours away, as in in the past, from the new city council being sworn in. Ten new faces on Hamilton City Council, including my next guest, who is now the mayor of Hamilton. Mayor Andrea Horvath joins us. Your Worship, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. My pleasure, Scott. How many people have referred to you as your Worship yet? Is that, is that still a new one for you? I Actually, you're one of the few, to be honest <laughs> with you. So I find it... Uh... It's very formal. It, it, I, it I was tr- it's I very was, formal. It is. And before you came on, I was trying to remember what the proper one was. And for a second, I was thinking, wait, it's not your eminence. I know that's not it. It's your worship. <laughs> it was, how, how does the chain of office feel around your neck? 
Uh, well, I wore it a little bit on Wednesday at the inaugural, um, and it's it's really what it what it is is symbolic. It's symbolic about uh, of the um, of the gravitas of the job, right? It's a, it's an important job. It's an important position, uh, and it uh, it really just I, I think reflects the importance of the work that happens uh, in the mayor's office and and through. Uh, through city council. And because of that, because of what you're saying of what it means, does it feel heavy? Because, I mean, you've you've been in this life for a long time now. You've had positions, everyone knows, high positions in political life. So does it just feel like it's another position or does it feel weighty? Well, it, it feels, so it feels weighty, but not in a negative way. Uh, it feels weighty uh, because our city has a lot going for it, a lot of opportunity. Uh, there's a lot of excitement that I, I feel out there. We have a city council that's very excited. We also have uh, some significant challenges that we have to address. And, uh, and, and those things, are, they're important. They're meaty issues. Uh, and so I don't see the kind of the weightiness of it as a negative, but rather as a reminder. Uh, that uh, that we've got some important work to do and that uh, Hamiltonians have made a huge change this time around uh, in terms of the council and uh, and then given um, I think the the people around the table as well as myself an opportunity uh, to uh, to really show how this city can shine and how we can all work together to make it shine. And one of the ironies of this is that during the campaign, leading into the campaign, you did not have, you and the others who were running, but uh, didn't have that huge issue that a lot of other elections have had recently, the stadium or the LRT or the Red Hill Creek Expressway. Those were not there. And yet, as soon as you get elected, all of a sudden you've now got issues with the province and you've got a, a, a tax increase of 6.9% being talked about. And you've got all of a sudden, like the minute you get put into office, a whole bunch of things immediately land on your plate. There's no doubt. Uh, and in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting with the uh, tax-supported capital budget in front of me, and it's about, uh, oh, I'd say, I'm going to use inches, so excuse me for not using <laughs> centimeters, but it's about, uh, well, two and a half inches thick. Um, yeah, there's no doubt that there are some serious issues, uh, but but that's not going to ever change. There's, there's all, there are always going to be things coming down the pike uh, from other orders of government uh, and or our own uh, challenges. And I'm, I'm, the, I'm one of the ones that heard very clearly, as, as most councillors did, I'm sure, uh, discontent from Hamiltonians about the state of our infrastructure, for example. So looking at our tax-supported capital budget, capital budget means what do we spend on our infrastructure? Uh, and so these things are going to be always in front of us. And the key is to make sure that we're using every a possible opportunity to make the decisions that are going to make a difference for Hamiltonians and that are going to engage other orders of government in uh, in helping us to um, you know to meet the needs of Hamiltonians and and yes housing is a big issue uh, certainly there's concerns around the greenbelt there are certainly concerns around uh, the um, uh, the urban sprawl issue. Um, we're going to work through that. I, I'm working with other mayors already uh, in, in this regard. I, I know the community has something to say about it. Uh, we have to find the way, pathway forward that works for Hamilton and Hamiltonians. I don't actually know the mechanics of becoming a mayor. I've never, I've never done it. So you were just sworn in on Wednesday, but had you actually started working essentially on mayoral things before Wednesday? Uh, not in any not in any major way certainly things like uh, so a transition plan uh we were 
we were working very hard on the campaign. You, you saw that it was a very close result, and so we spent a lot of time uh, making sure that uh, we were putting all of our energy and resources into the campaign. Uh, there is a requirement for transition. You know, you know Fred's people uh, that he had around him uh, were wonderful, and they are wonderful, and they've been helping uh, to show me the ropes. I'm also in the process of building my own team, and so some of that work was being done before um, before the actual inauguration, and so the, yeah, so there were some things, not so much city decision wise, but uh, but the preparation of um, you know of, of the taking over of uh, of the office, literally and figuratively. You heard very clearly, along with everyone else in the city during the campaign and going into the campaign, that people were tired of, for lack of a better word, the circus at City Hall. Now that you're in the position where you are chairing the meetings and you're in charge, essentially, how do you make sure that that remains? Because it's very clear that there are some very outspoken people who have now moved into council and they don't always agree on everything. That's true. Uh, One of the things that I've been attempting to do, and I think uh, people have been very um, well receiving of these initiatives, is to create a sense of team uh, with our council. We are going to disagree on some things, uh, but when we do that, let's do it respectfully. Uh, let's do it thoughtfully. Uh, let's do it with a, a debate that's fact-based uh, and that's not personal. And so we've been doing some, some work to um, to kind of create that type of an environment. Uh, there are going to be slip-ups for sure, but I do believe that, that much of this, um, you know, much of this effort comes from not only not only the team building efforts, but also uh, making sure that I'm demonstrating that kind of respectful uh, behavior and that kind of respectful uh, debate uh, with uh, with the councillors as well. Uh, you know, it's been great. They're fantastic. I don't I don't want you to get me wrong at all. They are wonderful. Uh, they're excited. They're looking forward to making some changes and and delivering for their not only for the people that live in their wards, but for the city as a whole. Uh, so that's that's a huge step uh, already. Uh, that, that, that there's that attitude there, there's, there's that positivity there. And so it's a, it's a matter of making sure that, that as things uh, continue over the next number of months, especially these next few weeks with the budget process, which is always prickly, um, that, that we just remember that we all got elected for the same thing or the same reason, and that's to, to serve Hamiltonians and to try to help our city reach its potential. One thing that some people have mentioned, and you can find it on social media, and I know that's a terrible place to try and find great opinions nonetheless, is, you know, with the last council, there were people who were seen as not going along with Rube, obstructing in some ways perhaps, or disagreeing with the majority do you object do you have a problem with people who disagree or who will fight against what the common or the majority view is do you have a problem with people who would not be going along with the things that you or others really want to push I, not at all because that's that's demo, that's democracy that's the, the democratic process and uh and and a big part of you know, making changes for our city and, and achieving things for Hamiltonians uh, is to uh, to ensure that those folks who perhaps are not uh, on the same page as the majority uh, still feel respected and still feel that their voice was taken seriously and that their concerns uh, were, um, you know, were, were heard. Uh, it, there, are, it's, it, it's. I think it's um, foolish to think that everybody's going to agree all of the time. It's in the disagreement that we learn, first of all, from each other, but it's also in the disagreement uh, that we that we create, um, you know, we create the commitment for uh, for collegiality and for 
uh, appropriate uh, behavior. Uh, that, that's what that's when the rubber hits the road. It's not when you agree. It's easy to get along or to to be respectful or to be dignified or to be behave in a professional manner when you all agree. But it's in the disagreement that we have to show Hamiltonians uh, that uh, that they've they've elected people that, that understand um, their responsibility to uh, to show Hamilton and our council as a as a as a professional. Uh, organization that uh, that can that can push forward uh, even at times when we disagree. Wish we had a lot more time, and we will down the road. We've got four years to do this. Uh, Mayor Andrea Horvath, uh, really appreciate you taking a few minutes today while the chain of office is still shiny and warm and fresh and everything. I don't even know what else would, <laughs> but appreciate you jumping <laughs> on today and taking a few minutes. Thank you for this. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. Bye bye. Uh, that is uh, that is the new mayor of the city of Hamilton. Again, we will be having her on and Bill will and Rick will and Scott Thompson will and you'll hear her on here regularly over the next four years. About 48 hours from now, give or take a few minutes, we will know whether schools are open in Hamilton on Monday. If there is a QP strike, the public and Catholic boards have both said they will not be open. I don't think anyone is looking forward to that op- uh, that option. I think everyone's hoping for an agreement, a settlement, a, a deal, and that QP workers and education workers would be back, would be on the job, not back on the job, but would be on the job. Uh, Blake Corkill is president of QP4153, joins us now. Blake, how are you today? Good, Scott. How are you? I am terrific. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Um, what are your, I mean, you're, you're with the union right now. What are the preparations in the event that things don't go well? Uh, the preparations just continue with where they left off uh, last Monday, Monday before, uh, when we were out before uh, the government agreed to repeal Bill 28. Uh, we still have uh, all of our people lined up. Uh, the picket captains looking after the strike lines are still all in place. And uh, it's just a matter of uh, flipping that switch to go back to strike lines instead of work. Uh, we've been talking about this all week on the show, and I want to get your opinion on this because um, all week, I think there's been an agreement that last week or whatever it was, a week and a half ago, the union clearly had the public support. They, the polls showed that people were not happy with the government using the notwithstanding clause, though there seems to be not quite as clear a sense that anyone has the public support at this point, this time. Is there a concern to you that things may be different, that that you may not have the same level of support from the broader public, or do you believe it's still there? Uh, I believe it's still there for the most part. Uh, we may have lost uh, some of the support that we had from certain groups or certain parents, uh, but for the most part, when we were out last uh, Saturday, uh, the horns didn't stop blowing all day long from cars driving by, showing their uh, support for us. How do you maintain that? Because I, I, I mean, I really believe that that becomes, in any case where there's a labor stoppage, especially a public sector one, you have to maintain the support in order to remain in a strong position. How do you maintain that? Uh, I think being very clear about what's being asked of uh, to the government and the Crown uh, and just being very clear and transparent as OSBCU has been right from the start uh, when we filed notice to bargain uh, five months ago. Do, do you think there is a, 
uh, it's not appetite. Appetite is clearly the wrong word. An acceptance among parents and families that if there was to be another stoppage, that they would be okay with that because of the reason why? Or do you think that the... Uh, do you think that maybe the patience is wearing thin, not just with you guys, but clearly with, you know, COVID kept their kids out of school and there were snow days a few years ago where we had a ton of them and then there was a, a teacher strike. It just seems to be adding up, piling up one thing after another that has kept their kids out of school. Do, do you think that their patience is thin now? Uh, I think everybody's patience is thin right across uh, the province from healthcare workers to education workers to uh, parents Uh, who have seen the last stunt from the government in handing out $380 million uh, as a bribe. Uh, I don't think there is a lot of support for the Crown or the CTA uh, right now. And I think a lot of the parent groups and uh, labour groups are watching this to see what will end up happening. And all of our members right across the province, all 55,000 of them, none of us want to be out on a line on strike on Monday. Um, That's just not the case. We want to be at work. We want to be with our students, with our coworkers, and we want to keep the wheels of education running. But there's a lot of things that uh, parents don't see day to day that, are happening in education that we're trying to bring up with some of our proposals. And, and I mean, I, I assume what you're talking about here is having education assistance in class and things. It's not, you're, you're suggesting it's not just the money, it's the other things that go along with it. Exactly. Uh, if it was just about money, I'm pretty sure we'd be back already. Has that been a misunderstanding though? Because it seemed that for a long time that was what the issue was. And then when the uh, second strike vote was taken, it was expressed that, well, no, this isn't just about money. Has there has there been good enough communication that everybody in the public really understands what is going on and what the issues are? I think uh, a lot of that is going to depend on where people get their information from. Uh, if you are listening to certain media outlets, uh, they are just going to play the spin of the government and the CTA. Uh, if you listen to other media outlets, uh, it's going to give you half and half. And there are some uh, media outlets that are more friendly towards us than they are uh, the government and the CTA. Um, but I think with a little bit of uh, looking on the Internet, uh, I know absolutely everything that OSBCU has proposed and done is available on their website. And that's the easiest place to go to look at what's actually happening. You know what? That is uh, that is great advice. I say that all the time. People shouldn't just settle for one source. Go and uh, find multiple sources and know what's going on. Uh, Blake Corkill, great advice. Uh, president of QP4153. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You may have heard... Uh, on the news or elsewhere today that uh, the world, well, you know, the World Cup starts on Sunday, but that in Qatar, a last minute change of plan or change of direction or change of something means that after agreeing to sell beer in a country that doesn't allow alcohol generally, but nonetheless, that was going to happen because it was the World Cup. Now, hours before, not so much anymore. 
Now it's not going to be allowed. And quite honestly, you or I, who are back here in Canada, probably couldn't care less. But I'll tell you who will care. Budweiser, which apparently spends over $100 million to be the sponsor, the beer sponsor of the World Cup. We're bringing in Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. He joins us now. Uh, Marvin, how are you today? I'm great, thank you. Glad to be with you. This, um, and thank you for being here. This, if you are a sponsor of a product, in this case beer, and it is one of your big events of the year, and you're all lined up to do pretty well, it would seem, and all of a sudden the country that is hosting says, no, we're not going to do this. How does, how does FIFA or anyone involved in the World Cup make good on this? Right. So, uh, Scott, before I answer your question, if you don't mind, just to get everybody else up to speed on this, it was 11 years ago that Qatar was awarded the right to hold the 2022 World Cup. And right from the beginning, there were a lot of questions. To give you one example, Qatar is an oil-rich country with a total population of 3 million people. It's not as big as Toronto. And the, the first question was, well, how are they going to accommodate nearly 1.3 million fans in a country that only has 3 million people? And this was the beginning of trying to put you know, a, a size 14 shoe in a, or five 14 foot in a size eight shoe. They have been trying to shoehorn it ever since. So they had to build nine stadiums. They've spent over $100 billion. That's with a B $100 billion on stadiums, on venues, trying to improve public transit, trying to get these other things up. And then every time you turn, there was a question. What about the weather? Cutter is a very hot country. You may have noticed that this games are being played almost in December. Why? Because that's when the daytime temperature gets low enough that people aren't going to die in the middle of a game while playing it. They built air-conditioned stadiums, not just open air or closed in, but they have to be air-conditioned to make this all work. A further problem uh, in this day and age, the LGBTQ community. Uh, Qatar is not a supporter of LGBTQ rights, but FIFA has announced that if you are in a same-sex couple, it will be uh, honored. We'll see if that works out. So what I'm trying to say to you is that these sort of problems, although this is a last minute problem, is hardly unexpected. You, you just know as they've been trying to shoehorn the big foot into the small shoe, there were going to be these problems. You asked, how is how does uh, Budweiser feel about it? Not good. Um, what Budweiser has decided to try to do with these 48 hours that are left is to promote the game to any place but cutter. In other words, the promotions at your local watering hole, using Budweiser, chance to win prizes, you know, deals if you buy the InBev beverages, they'll be everywhere. But the idea that they would sell a lot, you can still buy beer in Cutter. You just can't buy it in the stadiums. All you can do is buy non-alcoholic beer in the stadiums, 500 milliliters for about $9 U.S. But in the Fan Experience Village, which is a good uh, kilometer or so away from many of these venues, that's where you can get a beer. $16 for those looking for one for a half a liter. I just, you're absolutely right, Marvin. The, the, the idea that this is a surprise to anyone, uh, I think would be, you, you haven't been paying attention, but it, it just, it goes back to not just FIFA, but the, the IOC with the Olympics, it lately, whether it's because only countries with questionable leadership or circumstances <laughs> are able to pay what it now costs to put on an Olympics or a World Cup, or whether it's because they are trying to 
put on a bright face onto something. But it, it seems as though the decisions time after time now, Sochi in Russia, we saw what happened there. Um, Beijing we're, here, the decisions are so, I would, I would generously say questionable. People would choose yeah. a different word. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So again, to take you back 11 years ago, this was under the term of a fellow named Sepp Blatter who he himself wound up being under a cloud of suspicion about taking bribes and making inappropriate uh, decisions. Uh, Four years ago, these games, the World Cup was being held in Russia. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Russia got it and then Qatar got it. Now, four years from now, they're going to be held in North America, a a three-way partnership between Mexico, the United States, and Canada. But let's not kid ourselves. Although Canada will get a few games and Mexico will get a few games, all of the most important games are going to be in the United States. Nonetheless, they're returning to something that makes a little more sense. So we just had to get past this. Once you award them, it would be unprecedented to unaward them. So again, what they have to do, and, and again, I, I don't mean to be cynical here, Scott, but we've got roughly two weeks worth or maybe three weeks worth of World Cup uh, games and playoffs and ultimately crowning somebody. There will be more. There will be something. Somebody will get arrested. There'll be a riot. There'll be some protest. Who knows what it's going to be? And once again, they're going to have to come up and do damage control. So this is really the damage control World Cup. Uh, quite, a th- quite a name to put on a World Cup already, but you're absolutely right. Uh, Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Always love having you on here. Thanks for doing this. Glad to be with you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.